G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. How can every truth claim be valid when some truth claims directly oppose each other? Hi and welcome. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Today we'll be continuing our message on tolerance, the biggest lie ever. To accept all beliefs and moral codes means we are free to pursue our own desires without conscience or consequence. Can life really be lived this way? All truth claims exclude what is false. That is the nature of truth. As a matter of fact, think about this. Even atheism is exclusive, isn't it? It says there absolutely is no God. So by definition, they exclude everybody who believes in God. This is Today with Jeff Vines, and we continue Tolerance, the biggest lie ever. Now follow me, students, carefully. How can every truth claim be valid when some truth claims directly oppose each other? For instance, Christianity says that Jesus is God in the flesh. Islam says Jesus is not God in the flesh. How can both of those truth claims be true? How can they both be valid when they violate the most fundamental rule of logic in debate, the law of non-contradiction, that two statements made about the same thing that directly oppose one another cannot both possibly be true? All truth claims cannot be valid. You test it by asking which one corresponds to reality. If I say my wife is pregnant, 10 minutes later I say my wife is not pregnant, both those statements cannot be true unless we're living in one big loony bin. So let's review. All true statements are not equally valid, only those that reflect reality. What is the big lie then? Tolerance. Tolerance defined as all views about all things, opinions and ideas are equally valid. Now again, this position is in no way followed, it's just stated. And by the way, university students, let me give you some shocking news. When you turn in your test paper, I promise you that not all opinions are equally valid. And your professor does not believe that everything is equally true. And you'll find that out when you get your midterm grades. So why then? That's the next question. Why is such a lie propagated? Why are our universities preaching tolerance but really not practicing tolerance? Because they only want to apply this definition of tolerance where all opinions, ideas, and philosophies are equally valid to one category, the category of religion. And more specifically, and I know this is gonna shake some of you, and I asked for a little bit of grace this morning, but I don't stand here without much research. I believe there is a conscious effort in our country to rid our culture and society of Christianity. Why? That's my question. I believe there are two reasons that motivate them. Number one, because for a number of years in this country, for hundreds of years, Christianity has been the conscience of a nation, the moral compass. 
and in our institutions of higher learning, they are weary of the moral boundaries. Silence the Christians. Maybe the moral law and guilt will go away. Listen to what Thomas Nagel, the professor of philosophy at New York University, says. I want atheism to be true and then made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like this. And then Aldous Huxley stated, I want this world not to have meaning because a meaningless world frees me to my own erotic pursuits. We live in a country where the popular belief in higher education is this. The Christians gotta go. The Christians have to be silenced. Why? So that we can do what we wanna do. We are a people who are addicted to autonomy and freedom, and anything that restricts it, we've got to kill it. Isn't it interesting? Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. Does a miraculous thing. You'd think everybody wants to follow him. Instead, they meet together and say, we gotta kill it because he stands for moral law. That's why there was an article printed in the Washington Post in an interview with a Jewish philosopher professor who said that the Christians will be the Jews of the 21st century. You know what he meant by that? Well, if you go to Auschwitz today in Poland and you're able to take a tour through this concentration camp where all kinds of evil atrocities were committed, just above the door to the gas ovens, you will read a sign that's signed by Hitler that says, I want to raise a generation of young people devoid of a conscience, imperious, relentless, and cruel. Why did he want to raise a generation that did not have a conscience? Why? There have been many things written about the power, hunger of Hitler. And many have said that he knew in order to advanced his political agenda that there was going to have to be a lot of bloodshed, there were going to have to be atrocities committed, and he wanted to raise a youth generation who were a killing machine. But to do that, he knew he was going to have to remove guilt. To remove guilt, you're going to have to remove moral law. To remove moral law, you've got to remove the Jews because the Jews are the ones responsible to bringing us the moral code starting with the Mosaic law. And Hitler thinks, if I can just remove the Jews, then I will remove moral law, then I will remove guilt, and I can raise an entire generation of young people who will kill without a second thought. And I believe that's what is happening in our country. If we can just rid our country of these Christians, we can remove moral law, we can remove guilt, and we can do what we want to do. Only our addiction is not power, it's pleasure. We want to do what we want to do. And the sad thing about it is, Jesus tried to tell us, wait a minute now, guys, God is your father. When he gives the moral law, it's because he's motivated out of love and concern for you. The same reason I tell my little boy not to play in the middle of the street, he might get hit by a car. God gives us the moral law. He says, if you live within these restrictions, you're going to have a happy, peaceful life of contentment and joy and ultimate meaning and purpose. But if you get outside of the boundaries, then you're going to wreak havoc on your life and on others as well. That's why G.K. Chesterton said, before you remove a boundary, or Malcolm Muggeridge rather, you better ask why the boundary was placed there in the first place. But Jeff, hold on a second. How is it that claiming that all ideas, opinions, and philosophies are equally valid, how is that an attack on Christianity? Well, think about it. Remember, I said they only want to use this view of tolerance when they talk about Christianity, not when they live their lives.
If all truth claims are equally valid, then Jesus' claim to be the only way and the only truth seems intolerant. If all truth claims are equally valid, Jesus cannot be the only way. Christianity is discredited. If all interpretations of a text are equally valid, if you can give meaning to words, the meaning that you want to give them, then you can literally make the Bible say anything you want it to say. You can reinterpret Jesus' words to actually support your position rather than to come against it or conflict with it. I'm going to say this really nicely and from a loving heart, which is exactly what the homosexual community is doing with the scriptures. Now, so I don't get in trouble, let me be clear. Jesus loves all people, but it doesn't mean he wants all people to stay as they are right now. He calls all of us to a higher morality. And when you start using the Bible to condone your activity by changing the meanings of words and text, you're doing exactly what the universities of higher education in America want you to do so that we all can do what we want to do and interpret Jesus' words the way we want to interpret them. And if there are no absolute moral laws, then we do not have to be held accountable to the morality Jesus Christ has stated and taught for over 2,000 years. We can come up with our own morality. All right, why go after Christianity? Number one, because in this country for hundreds of years, Christianity has been the conscience of a moral compass or moral compass of our nation. Discredit Christianity, discredit moral law. Number two, because there is a presupposition that only Christianity is exclusive. Number two, discredit Christianity because there is the assumption that only Christianity is exclusive. Now, now, do you love me? Because <laughs> this, this is going to be hard, okay? I, I, I really do love you. I really do. I love all people. If there are people in this room struggling with pornography, homosexuality, lesbianism, whatever it is, I want you to know I love you. You are welcomed in this room. Do you understand that? We all have our evils to overcome. I just want you to understand there are categories of moral right and wrong. I have them in my life. You have them in yours. Let's work together and be the people Jesus wants us to be. But I want you to hear this other thing as well, and it's going to be harder than that. This whole idea that only Christianity is exclusive is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Right now, as I'm speaking to you, this week I have received three emails from my preacher friends in India, guys who are going out to preach the gospel and spread the love of Jesus Christ. Their homes are being burned, they're being persecuted, their families are being raped and tortured, all for one reason, just because they are a Christian. And they live in the midst of militant Muslims. Now, hold on, don't go out of here and say that your pastor said that all Muslims were militant. I did not say that. I just said that if you think that there are not other religions or faiths that are intolerant or that are exclusive, then you're missing the point. All religions are exclusive because all religions make true statements and those true statements automatically exclude by nature that which is false. But let me tell you something else. Only in a Christian nation that believes in the marketplace of ideas and democracy would Islam be able to survive other than in an Islamic state? Now you think about this. Christianity has a difficult time progressing in Islamic nations. Why? Because if you become a believer, you'll be killed. But Islam has no trouble progressing in a Christian country. Why? 
because you're allowed to hold any view and opinion, philosophy and religion because all views are equally protected and I, for one, like that issue or definition of tolerance. <laughs> but let me tell you something. This whole thing that we're going to get rid of Christianity because we don't want to keep their moral values. Folks, society abhors a vacuum. And when Christianity is gone, something else will replace it. And it will not be so tolerant as Christianity is in this country. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Christians are persecuted and killed around the world for their faith, the opposite of being tolerated. When someone rejects the gospel, we are called to love them regardless. Let's continue. I'm not saying that Christianity is not exclusive. It is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But this should not be viewed as bad or intolerant. If someone disagrees with me on that, my response is what? To love them. To talk about it openly. To discuss it. No real Christian or follower of Jesus would ever abuse somebody or hurt them because they didn't agree with their position in Christ. But that cannot be said in Islamic nations where if you say something negative at all about their religious leader, you might be killed. All truth claims exclude what is false. That is the nature of truth. As a matter of fact, think about this. Even atheism is exclusive, isn't it? Atheism postulates an absolute negation. It says there absolutely is no God. So by definition, they exclude everybody who believes in God. Truth claims are exclusive. And here's what really kind of irks me. You'll go into a professor of religion class at one of our universities, and he will stand up and say this. He will say that all religions are fundamentally the same, only superficially different. Let me tell you, he states that because he is ignorant. I say that in a nice way, but he is uninformed. Because the reality is all religions are fundamentally different, only superficially similar. So that the real question becomes this. Which religion and its fundamental truth claims can stand up to scrutiny. Which truth claims of a religious leader responds or reflects reality? That is the real question. And how I'm going to close this message then is answer that question. Listen to what Jesus says again in John 14. Stay with me. I'm out of time, but I don't care. John 14 says this. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. When Jesus makes this statement, he takes three of the most basic Jewish conceptions and he makes a tremendous claim that he achieves all three. And I want you just to understand it. University students, I'm just asking that you comprehend what Jesus is saying and then test it. Here's what he says. He says, I am the way. He doesn't say like every other religious leader on the planet, come follow me and I will show you the way. He says, I am the way. Now, what does he mean? What is so fundamentally different about Jesus when compared to every other religion that he can stand up and say, my way is the way, I am the way. I can illustrate that in a simple story. Do you know the story found in the Bible of the prodigal son? He goes to his father. He says, dad, I don't want to wait till I get my inheritance. I want it right now. I want to go and spend it on what I want to spend it on. And he does. His father gives it to him. We don't know why. And we wonder about the father, but he does. And he goes away to a foreign land and he spends it all, he splurges, he finds himself at the end of a few months out of money, and he finds himself working in the pig pen. He's sitting there one day and he's thinking, he says, you know what, 
I could go back to my father, be a slave in his house and be treated better than I am in his pig pen. So he runs back all the time asking, how is the father going to accept me? When he gets on the road, instead of the father waiting, the father sees him, he runs out. And instead of making him a slave, he embraces him, puts a ring on his finger, a cloak on his back and says, welcome back to full sonship, my friend, because not of works, but by grace, you are reestablished. This is what makes Jesus different than any other religious leader in the world. It's the difference between do and done. In every other religious system, you've got to pray five times to the east. You've got to make a pilgrimage. You've got to keep a system of rules and regulations. And if you violate them, you're in big trouble. With Jesus, he says, no, it's not about what you do. It's about what I did, what's been done on the cross 2,000 years ago when I gave my life for your life. Now you can be placed in a right relationship with the Father because of what I've done for you on your behalf. Jesus says... I am the only way because only Jesus died for you, folks. He's the only one that went to the cross for you. Nobody else did that. And besides that, if you say there are other ways to God other than Christ, I want to think, talk about two things. Number one, then we are violating the law of non-contradiction again because grace and works are mutually exclusive ideas. They're not compatible. You're either saved by grace or saved by works. And if you're saved by works, Jesus was a liar. If you're saved by grace, he was telling the truth. The second thing is this. If you can be saved through another way, don't you think God's a bit cruel? If you can be saved another way, then why torture your son on a cross? Think about it. We're talking about the scourging before Jesus is even crucified where they take this big leather whip and they've got this leather socket at the end and they put these metal balls in there and they beat your back until it's bruised. And then when you're just about ready to die, they take the same leather whip with these sockets and fill it with chips of bone so that now it will go into your back and extract flesh as it's pulled away. That's why they call the scourging halfway death. Now, if there's another way to reconcile men to himself, why do you punish your son that way? People come to me and say, well, I think there's got to be more than one way. The people who say that, you know what they say? When I ask them what way have they chosen, they say, well, I'm still open to options. <laughs> the truth is, no matter what way God provided for you to be saved, you would always want one more way. The question is, is Jesus' claim valid? Is he the way? Now that moves to the second point and they build on each other. He says, I am the truth. Again, Jesus sets himself apart. Other religious leaders promise to guide you into all truth, but Jesus says, I am the truth. Now, he uses this Greek word, aletheia, which is a word that means integrity of character. At its most basic definition, it means I am the only one whose words perfectly correspond to my actions. No other religious leader can claim that he kept perfectly the moral law that he taught. That's why we talk about the sinless and perfect life of Jesus. Jesus asked the Pharisees, what charge do you bring against me? Silence. There was no sin you could accuse him of. Jesus said in John chapter eight, he said, I am God in the flesh. Now think about this for a moment. Verse 57, then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have, and you have seen Abraham because Jesus was claiming to know Abraham. Jesus said to him, most assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. I don't have a beginning or an end or a middle. I am eternally existing. I am God in the flesh. And I say this kindly, but when my Jehovah Witness and Mormon friends try to tell me that Jesus never claimed to be God in the flesh, I always like to take them to John 8 and ask, then why did they pick up stones to throw at him when they only stoned you for blasphemy? 
They knew what Jesus was saying and they wanted to kill him. But the question is, did Jesus' life back up this statement? I mean, that's a pretty big statement to make. I am God. But then look at the miracles. The lame walk, the blind see, the lepers are cleansed. He lives a sinless life. And then Jesus himself rises from the dead. No other major religious leader did these things or even claimed to do them. And that's where Jesus stands in stark contrast. That I am the way, I am the truth. My actions perfectly correspond with my words. I said I'm God and I do the actions that only God could do, one of which is to come back from the dead. But here's the third and final one. He says, I am the life. Now, I want you to stay here. This is it, okay? University students, do you know what the word university means? It's heritage. Out of the many, one. Look, on every American coin, you will find the words of pluribus unum. Out of the many, one. Unity and diversity, university. Because when universities were founded in our country, they were founded on this principle, that you would learn all these things and all these different topics but they would all point to one central truth. And do you know what that truth was? That God is sovereign and is working his redemptive plan in the world. They're called universities. Now today, they would better be called pluralversities because you learn all these things about all these different things. They all conflict, they all contradict, and they, they all point to nothing. Unity and diversity. Now let me give you the absolute truth of unity and diversity. Here's a truth that is undeniable. You're gonna die. I promise you. Empirically verifiable, everybody dies. Now, do you want to listen to someone who has a theory about what happens after death or someone who's been to the other side and come back to tell us the rest of what it's like? Only Jesus rose from the dead, which validates his words are true. Now, I wish I had the time to go into my defense of that because, folks, you will find no Jewish polemic resources that doubt the empty tomb. You talk about history and the study of history, not one Jewish polemic resource that doubts the empty tomb. It is a given, it is a statement, it is historical fact. Now let's talk about how it was empty. Students, when you're sitting in that class and you've got some professor telling you there's no absolute truth, you think about that. And there's no absolute meaning to words, you think about how then he can even teach you that. And when he's telling you there's no absolute moral law, absolute truth, then you should stand up, and I don't encourage you to do this. But maybe, maybe you can write it on a piece of paper and slide it on his desk and say, if there's no absolute truth, why should I even come to this class? Because nothing you say can be trusted. But if you put your hand in the hand of the Savior, everything that you're looking for, the way to live, the truth, someone who will never lie to you, and the life someone that when your days are over will escort you into eternity where his pleasures are evermore. If you'll do that, then you can make God the highest pursuit of your intellectual education and he will never let you down. Father, we are grateful for your kindness and your goodness. We are grateful that we can know you through a personal intimate relationship. We are grateful that we are able to test your truth claims and that we can know that you had a life that backed up what you believed and what you taught and what you said. And Father, perhaps more than anything else, we are grateful that you are the one who provided a way whereby we could be saved, where it's not an issue of doing this or doing that, but of something that's already been done, and now all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus we know shall be saved. We are grateful for your provision, for your kindness, for your generosity, 
for your blessings that you pour out upon our lives every day. And we give our lives to you. And I pray for every university student in this room as school starts again, that you would remind them, you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life. And everything they hear at university or college, they should test it on the foundation and background of what we already know to be absolutely true. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Today with Jeff Vines, and that's the end of tolerance, the biggest lie ever. Join us next time when Pastor Jeff will bring us a new message about making a commitment. Today with Jeff Vines, just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.